All right, everybody, good morning. It's 10.01. I guess we should get started. You guys have to deal with me for one more time. And then you get a break. Um, I, uh, well, I'm going to finish part two today, and then uh, we'll take a break from the uh, Godhead series, and then we'll come back to it down the road in a little while, and I'll, I'll work on part three, which is really neat. But for now, I just want to complete part two and share some things that I feel like God has dealt with me about the Godhead uh, even today and over the past few days. Um, you know, I, I feel like that I know him better now than I ever have. I mean, this, is, this series has caused me to really, really dig into who he is and what he represents. And I, feel, I just feel closer to God because I feel like I understand him in a very clear, very precise way. I don't know everything about God and the Godhead. Nobody does. We can only know what he's disclosed to us. But I feel like I know what he has disclosed. Therefore, I know him on a more personal and intimate level. And that's really what it's about. So I'm going to pick up on the mystery of godliness and start there. And this is one of those things where some will say that the Godhead is a mystery and it can't be understood or fully understood. And that's simply not scriptural. Um, there are actually a number of mysteries that are revealed in the Bible that were not necessarily known in Old Testament times or were alluded to. Um, and we're going to talk about a couple of those because they're actually interconnected here with the Godhead. But, but understand that there is no mystery in God's disclosure of who he is. And here, here's why. If, if I don't know who he is, and I have this shroud, this veil in my mind of who my deity is, how on earth can I worship him and live for him and know him? It's an enigma then. And he's not enigmatic. That's not, that's not the way he works. Okay, so th it's not a mystery. If you want to talk about the mystery of the Godhead revealed... It is the mystery of how Jesus Christ could be fully God and fully man and how God could come to the earth as a man to save fallen humanity. That is the mystery of godliness. And we're going to look at that in the scripture. I've got scripture for that. The composition of the Godhead is, is never alluded to as a mystery. Okay, that's the thing. Now this truth, this mystery has been revealed to the church, it's been revealed to the believers, and it's revealed through the Spirit of God and through His Word. Okay? So He's revealed it to His people, who He is. Right? If I want to know about God, I better be in submission and surrender to the Spirit. I better be in fellowship with the Spirit of God. I better be reading the Word of God. It takes those two things together, and what He will do is through His Spirit, He will show you His truth. So I'm going to read. read a couple of scriptures here. Now, there's a, there's a neat twist in this that uh, is something that I just, I guess, it put two and two together and, and got four with this. But uh, let me build up to that. So in Colossians 2, 2, and 3, now, you don't, these scriptures are not on the slides, okay, um, which they're, 
Okay, yeah, we're good. Um, you know, I, what, what, I just got to say this. What happens is I, I get my slides set up and I get my notes set up, and then I'm, I'm in prayer. God deals with me about things. He's like, well, you know, maybe you need to do this or talk about this. Or, you know, I feel impressed. And so I don't always go back in and re-edit the slides because it just takes too much time. So this is where we're at. Colossians 2, 2, and 3 says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches, the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. And it says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that mystery of the Father and Christ united together into one God. Okay? Spirit, Messiah, together in one. That's what you're dealing with. All right, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. And I'll tell you this, I don't think that it's any, it's not by chance that in one of the most powerful oneness books in the entire Bible that you're dealing with the disclosure here of these in the book of Colossians. I think that's, that's, there's a reason for that. Um, Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says this, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to us To the saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that sounds like that's mutually exclusive. Mystery of the Godhead revealed, mystery of Christ in you, hope of glory. I am telling you right now, they are not mutually exclusive. They are not. I'm not going to read it, but Ephesians chapter 3 deals with this. I want to pull out one scripture in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, it's verse 19, and it says, Through the indwelling and love of Christ in us. Now listen to this. We are filled with the fullness of God. That's my hope of glory. That's him as the spirit, as Christ in me. And notice it says all the fullness of God through that spirit of Christ, through God's spirit dwells in me. Well, doesn't all the fullness of the Godhead, wasn't it represented in Jesus Christ? Catch what that's saying. It's, it's not a mystery. It's not one that's not been revealed anyways. Christ in me, God in me, in the fullness. That's my hope. That's my hope. I mean, you take that. You take that away from me. I got nothing. I got nothing. I don't have part of God in me. I have all of God in me. I'm going to read a scripture. Let me go to the next slide. Um, this is the one with 1 Timothy 3.16. I purposely haven't gone to this scripture yet because I wanted to talk about it now. It's a really powerful scripture that fully discloses the beauty of the mighty God in Christ. And this is powerful. Um, I'm just going to read it. This is 1 Timothy 3.16. It clearly states here that the mystery of godliness is great, has been great, okay? However, it has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And this is what the verse says. It says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was. I'm going to come back to that. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. That's talking about Jesus Christ. 
I mean, if you can't, if you can't understand the mystery of godliness is the almighty God in Christ after reading that, your ears are stopped up. Now, one of the things, um, and, and this is something I, I looked at years ago, the text, the original text from which that's translated from, the word that's used to translate God in the very first part of that scripture is really worn. And there's some argument as to whether, and I've, I've seen this written about whether that is God or he, in other words, in an allusion to maybe it's not talking about Almighty God. Well, if you go back and you look at the subject of verses 14 and 15, which 16 is a continuation of that, the subject of verses 14 and 15 is God. It's the Lord, Jehovah. So there's no doubt that either way you want to go with that, whether you want to use God or you want to use a pronoun he, it's in reference to God Almighty. So that's a very good scripture that completely shows that the mystery of godliness has been revealed to the church and what it is. All right, next slide. This is one of my favorite subtopics in all of this is the glory of God. And we're going to touch on God's glory and we're going to touch on how it relates to Jesus Christ. And there is some powerful stuff in this. At least I think there is. It got to me. Jesus Christ had and was and represented all of the glory of God in every sense of what God's glory is. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. I may read these. I may not. There's a couple of verses in the book of Isaiah where God clearly says, I will not give my glory to another. He won't share his glory with anybody. He can't based on his nature. He just can't do it. He won't do it. And that's really important because the Bible clearly shows that Jesus Christ had the glory of God, which by implication, then he is God. Now, Isaiah 40 and 5 is a prophetic scripture that deals with the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. This, I'm going to read this. It says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's it talking about? It's talking about the coming of the Messiah. It's going to be revealed. And, and I'm going to tell you this. To me, in my, my line of thinking, Jesus Christ was the full representation and revelation of God's glory. Now, let's look at a couple of, a few scriptures in here. So, uh, and, and this is where it just, to me, gets fascinating. So let's look at uh, Hebrews 1 and 3. It says, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. Now, okay, this one got me. I started studying that. I wanted to look at what, what is that really saying? It's the brightness of God's glory. Okay. And I'm going to pull this out here. Um, I'm going to make sure that I don't miss anything. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back to that one. So um, there's a Greek word in Hebrews 1 and 3 where the brightness is translated from. And this is what it means. An off flash effulgence or brightness. I, I don't know about you, but when I, I was studying that, I was like, okay, an off flash, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I think I have a pretty good vocabulary, but I had to look up the word effulgence. Any of you know what that means? If you do, you're smarter than I am. And, I, and, I, and that's something what I want to talk about. So an off flash, 
It's like a pop, bang. So when it says that he's the brightness of God's glory, he's the very most radiant portion of his glory. Now, I looked at that word effulgence, and effulgence means radiant, splendor, brilliance, to shine brightly. It also has a connotation of brightness taken to the extreme. It implies that one may be dazzled by it, stunned by it, or even overcome by it. I'd say that's a pretty good descriptor of Jesus Christ as the glory of God. Jesus Christ was God's glory incarnate. When you see the glory of God, what you're going to see is him. You're going to see Jesus Christ. And that's what you're going to notice, and that's all you're going to notice. That effulgence, he's so bright and so representative and filled with the glory of God, that's all you can see. You see the power in that? That's just, mmm. All right, so I want to go back for a minute. And this is one of those things where I've read a scripture, and Brother Price, I hear you say this all the time. You're up here, and you're just like, I never looked at this this way before. Well, this is one of those, I've never paid any attention to this. I've read it, and I've skimmed by it every time. Almost, you almost forget it's in there. I want to read in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. And I'm going to read the whole thing, because I want to get to a point, and I want you to see something. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Well, there's a lot you could say about that. Whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, that's a whole lot in that scripture, which I'm not going to get into at all because it's really outside the bounds of my lesson. But I'm going to tell you something. The light of God and the glory of God and the brightness of God and the truth of God through Christ better shine in my understanding. Otherwise, I open myself up to Satan and I open up myself to the adversary and I open myself up to all kinds of problems in my understanding of who God is. I'll just say that. Verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves are bound servants for your sake, for Jesus' sake, excuse me. Now look at verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, I've read that, and I've read over it and read over it, and it's just a lot of words in there. But what is that really talking about? Well, I did some studying. Okay, that face in verse 6 is translated from a Greek word that means the front as being towards view. In other words, facing the countenance, aspect, appearance, surface. Now look at this, by implication, presence, person, and outward appearance. Jesus Christ reveals and shows and offers face forward the full glory of God. When we look at his face, and there's going to come a day when we're going to do that, you are going to be just immersed in God's glory. I mean, that's just, that got me. In other words, he represents, what he's saying is he represents through bodily form God's glory revealed to me, revealed to the church. Mm. I've never paid any attention to that.
Now the Bible says, I'm not going to read these scriptures, but the Bible says that Christ's glory, Jesus' glory came from the Father. And it also says he will come in the glory of the Father. That's basically saying that he has God's glory because he is God. Now he's talked about as the revealed glory of God in the scriptures. Now it cites Philippians chapter 2 in there. And I'm going to save Philippians chapter 2 and John 5.18 for next time. I'm not going to get into that. There's a really, really misunderstood passage of scriptures in Philippians dealing with Christ being equal to God. And it's misquoted and it's misunderstood. And we're going to deal with that. I'm not going to deal with it today. But I just want to let you know that's there. The glory of God being applied to Jesus is important because I said earlier, God won't share his glory with anyone. So by definition, then, if Jesus Christ has the glory of God, he must then, in fact, be God. Now, I want to read a passage. Um, I'm on the next slide. I want to read a passage in Acts chapter 7. And it's a really interesting passage. It's towards the end of Acts chapter 7. It's verses 55 through 59. I'm not going to read all of it. But it's where Stephen is stoned for preaching the gospel. And it's what happens when he looks up into heaven and sees, sees Jesus Christ. It really gets me. And there's a couple of things in there I want you to notice. So in verse 5, he says, but he, this is Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. Again, I've got to have the Spirit of God if I want to make sense of anything. If I'm trying to go through everything without the Spirit of God, I am going to have problems. I'm going to have errors and mistakes. He had the Spirit of God leading him, okay? And it says, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, we talked a little bit about that, but he saw God's glory as Jesus Christ. He saw God represented as Jesus Christ. That's what he saw. And it says, and they stoned Stephen. Now, I like this. This is verse 59. It says, listen to what it says. As he was calling on God. He was, in other words, he was crying out to God. And what did he say? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Why did he say that? Because that's who he saw. That was God. I mean, he was calling on God, and he said, Lord Jesus, because that's all he could see. And I'm sure that by that time, Stephen had the understanding of who Jesus Christ was. But the point is, that's an actual account. That's not a, a parable or a, it's not a symbolism. That actually happened. And that's what he saw. He saw Jesus Christ as God, as God's glory. I think that's, that's powerful. Now, here's something that I felt, just felt impressed with this. There has to be just one indivisible God. Because if there's not, then God's glory is shared. And God said he won't share his glory with another. There cannot be a multiplicity of entities in the Godhead because it implies shared glory. He won't do it. Please understand that. All right, next slide. Now to the part that is going to get me choked up. I'm just going to tell you up front. That's okay. It's a very clear doctrine throughout the Word of God that only God should be worshipped. And I'm going to tell you, I felt like God's dealt with me about this pretty strongly. It's not that I'm running around worshiping other gods. But who am I worshiping?
am I praying to? Who do I see as God? What is my concept and comprehension of him? Is it scriptural? Is it man-made? Is it a combination of the two? Or I've built this half-truth about God? I mean, what, what, what do I have? And I think every one of us should stop at some point in time and ask ourselves, what do I have in my knowledge and understanding of God? Who am I worshiping? Who am I following? Whose doctrine is shaping my relationship? Is there a relationship? I mean, these are, these are legitimate questions that you've got to ask yourself. So I'm going to read some scriptures here, and then I'm going to talk, and then just, I really, I, really, I really want God to, very important to me that I let God deal with me how he's dealt with me, that I can disclose that. And that's my prayer, is to be able to disclose to you what I, what I feel he's dealt with me about. This, just, this is, this is very important. This is very right. I don't feel the, feel the Holy Ghost in this. This is, to him, I think this matters. Because at the, at the end of everything, did I worship him? Did I know him? Did I do what I was supposed to do as he has given me to do through the word? Did I do that? Or did I somehow get off track and end up serving a God who's not the God of the word? The Bible goes through, and, and, and God goes through great lengths in the scriptures to help us to understand that only he should be worshipped. Who, who he is, and that only he should be worshipped. Now, I'm going to read Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 9. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And there's a parallel passage in Exodus 20. I'm going to read that here in a minute. I need to be very careful about false gods that can creep into my life and my understanding. I'm talking about gods that I erect just through living my life is i mean and i'm not going to get sidetracked here but we can make anything a god but that's not even really fully what i'm dealing with if i'm not careful i will let other people's understandings influence me about who my god is if i'm not careful i will let what goes on in my mind what i think possibly affect my understanding of who god is it's not just, you know, I make my job or my bank account or my hobbies or whatever my God. That's, that's, that certainly can happen. I can make a relationship, my God. I'm talking about my doctrine. What forms and shapes my doctrine? I've got to be very careful about what I let in here. And if I don't run it through the Holy Ghost as a filter and I don't run it through the Word of God as a filter... And make sure that if there's anything that's wrong in there, out of alignment, I get it back into alignment. My concept of who he is is going to begin to become distorted. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 40. No, I'm not going to read that, okay? It clearly warns us not to recognize and worship any other God save the Lord. Not any God of nature, 
nor any gods that we have created with our hands or our minds. Beware. I can't walk around in la-la land thinking everything's good. I have got to be cognizant of the fact that it's human nature to erect for ourselves gods through our lives, through what we hear, through what we're influenced by. That's why I've got to have the Spirit of God and I've got to have the Word of God. Now, I want to, I want to read, uh, I want to go back and deal with that word jealous for just a minute. This is another one of those things when I was, I was going through this, it just kind of hit me. What is all that? You know, his name is jealous. I am a jealous God. Normally, we don't, we don't look at jealousy as being something that's a good thing. You know, I mean, you don't want to go around being jealous. It causes some problems. So why is God a jealous God? And why does he say that his name is jealous? And I started looking at some of this, and it just is pretty neat. So let's, let me read Exodus 20, 1 through 5. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, Now this is God saying. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Now I'm going to come back to that. Okay? Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here it is again. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before is a preposition. And, I mean, I know what it means. You know what it means. I mean, but what, is it, what does it mean there? Because to me, I always, when I read that, I always think, okay, you're not going to have any gods above me, ahead of me in the hierarchy above me. And, and it, does, it does mean that, but it means a whole lot more than that. And, and this, is, this is really neat. All right, so it's translated from a Hebrew word that means above, over, upon. You know what the word upon means? Now look at this. I will have, you shall have no other gods upon me. To me, that's dealing with your viewpoint of me. Do not put your doctrinal view of God on me and worship that God. You take my doctrinal viewpoint. Now, it gets, it gets better. It means against. Applications of the word above, according to. In other words, my deity better be according to me, him, not according to something else. This is there. This is in there. After, against, now, now look at this, among or beside. You better not mix any gods in with him. You better not have any gods among him or besides him. Don't put any gods in there with him. I'm one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. So then when he says, don't have any other gods before me, it's not just talking about above him. It's talking about anywhere in any capacity with him or before him or in your mind or in your thinking associated to him. That got me. I, I just always looked at it. Okay, God, yeah, you're the supreme God and don't have anything above you and ahead of you. I got it. 
No, I didn't have it. Now, Exodus 34 and 14, which I'm not. Yeah, I'm still good. We're still good. Um, I'm going to read. It just says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So he says his name is Jealous. He says he's a jealous God. So I started digging into this. Um, I'm just going to define the word jealous by the Webster's Dictionary. Webster's a reliable source, right? I think it is. And when I read the definitions, I thought, yeah, that, that covers it. There's three things. Hostile toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage. Okay. Number two, intolerant of rivalry or unfaithfulness. Okay. Number three, vigilant in guarding a possession. So which one of those three, or which ones of those three, all those three, is in reference to what our jealous God is? I started thinking about that. Well, okay. The word that it's translated from, now you have to go back and you have to look at the actual word and the, the root word from which it's derived. You take them together. I did it on this, okay? That's, that's, where you, that's where you, what you have to do here. It says it means to be causatively or to make zealous. Now, zealous is just you, you've got a strong, fervent energy or enthusiasm for a cause or a thing, whatever it is. So, okay, so he's zealous, you know, the Bible refers to God as being zealous. He's zealous for his people. He's zealous for a relationship with his people. Okay, but, but also, okay, jealous or envious to move, to provoke to jealousy. And there's, to me, there's a, there's a strong, intense, okay, he's looking at me and he's looking at his people and the way I feel that there's a connotation there is God is covetous of the relationship between me and you and him. There's a strong and intense desire for a faithful, lack of a better word, monogamous relationship between his church and himself. So if you look at those definitions of jealousy, it makes sense in context. He's not going to share my worship and my exaltation and my love and my attention with anybody, anything, any false god. He's not going to do it. Okay? And he tells you that. He, said, he, he lets you know, hey, I'm a jealous god. I covet you. I covet that relationship. You know, you either going to be with me alone or it's not. Again, he's the only one that should be worshipped. There's also some, well, it also means biblically only of God. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, 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 an aspect of this of punishment of those who do not do as they should. And there's also a connotation with it dealing with exclusive service to God. So in other words, he's a jealous God. You're either of God or you're not. 
There's repercussions if you're not. And your service to God is to be exclusively to him. He covets that. He's hungry for that. He's looking for that. And here's the thing. He's not going to accept less than that. He's not going to accept me or you having something else in play that competes with him as God. That includes doctrine. Our next slide. God hates idolatry. He hates it. It's an abomination to him. You know, ultimately, Israel's downfall in the Old Testament was idolatry. It really was. It, it, they, 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 they never, and here's the thing, they never fell in love with God. They never did. They never, I mean, some of them did, but as a nation, they never fell in love with him. And because of that, they kept looking for, I, I really believe they just kept looking for something else. And what it, what it did, it, it, it drove idolatry. You know, if, if I don't fall in love with him, it's going to drive me to look at something else. And that something else is going to pull me away from God. And that's what happened. You know, and they, they get into trouble. They cry out because he loved them and because he was committed to them and faithful. He would reach down and he would pull them out of that. And they'd go along for a while, okay. Then they start to drift away. Something else would pull them so they'd find something else to worship. God help me if I can't walk with him. If I don't have enough understanding of who he is and I don't have enough love for him that I can't walk with him. I, don't, I just don't want to be that way. I don't want to fall from him. All right. If he's a jealous God and he's not willing to share worship or exaltation with anyone else, how then can there be any type of division in the Godhead where worship and exaltation are shared among entities? Not happening. He's a jealous God. He's not going to share my affections and my attention among anyone or anything. Make no mistake about it. It's either his or it's not. Next slide. I'm sorry, all I'm having to go through two things of paper, and that's just how it's going to be. All right, I'm going to read in Ezekiel 14, 1 through 7, and I'm going to read this because it's important. But beware of idolatry of heart and mind. Beware of idolatry that we create in our thinking. Now, I've mentioned that, but I want to read this scripture because this is another one of those where I've read it and I haven't really paid attention to it. He says, now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, these men have set up idols, their idols in their hearts and put them put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. So he's talking he's talking about what's in their thinking. Doesn't matter how it got there. It's what's established in their minds. Okay, stuff can come in from a variety of sources. It could even be my ignorance because I'm ignorant about God and the Godhead and I'll let some source of 
you know, false information established in my mind. The problem is once it establishes it in my mind, how do I get it out of there? That's difficult. And I like this. He says, should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? This is God saying that. I mean, they don't have a, they don't have a right concept of me. They're idolatrous in their mind. Should I even let them inquire of me? Well, I don't want to close out my avenue to God because my doctrine is wrong. Because my understanding of the Godhead is wrong, so I close out my avenue of communication with him because he doesn't recognize, you know, I'm, 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 in other words, I'm reaching out to a God who he's not. Well, should I even bother to answer that? In other words, you know, why didn't you do what you're supposed to do to learn who I am? I don't know. It got me. That just it really struck a chord with me. Verse 4 says, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord, God, every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart. So here this implies an intentional. They set up their idols in their heart. That is an intentional thing. I had to somehow do this. Whether I started out down that road or not, I did it. And puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will answer him who comes. Now look at this. According to the multitude of his idols. Ooh, I don't want that kind of answer from God because I don't understand who he is. And my concept of God is wrong and false. Verse 5. That I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me. By what? The idols in their minds. He says they're estranged from me. That means they don't know me. That means they're not close to me. They're not in contact with me. They're going through the motions, but they don't have a clue as to who I am. God help me if I ever go through the motions and live trying to live for God and I don't even know who he is. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. I'll tell you what. This is something I felt it'd be a real good idea to spend some time in prayer about this kind of thing and make sure that, God, if I'm getting off track in my thinking of who you are, that you straighten me out. You deal with me through prayer and through your word and through an open heart, and you get my mind and my concept wrapped around you the way it's supposed to be before I build an idol in my thinking and separate myself from God. If my understanding of the Godhead is incorrect, it can lead me to a place of idolatry where I actually serve a God who is not Jesus. I don't ever want that. Next slide. Jesus was worshipped numerous times. He never corrected or stopped the worshipers. They're not going to read these scriptures. There's a bunch of them. Not one time did he say, oh, wait. Don't do that. Because there's times in the Bible where people worshiped something that they thought was God and where they were corrected. Like, for example, in Revelation, where the angel corrected John. Now, don't do that. Worship God. Okay? Remember that Jesus even quoted the first two commandments, with, which deal with that. So he knew it. Why didn't he stop them? For the obvious reason, he was God manifested in the flesh. We talked about this one already, but when Thomas declared Jesus as his Lord and God, Jesus didn't correct him. 
If the scriptures are under spiritual inspiration, which they are, the Bible says they are, then when Paul and Peter wrote about the mighty God and Savior Jesus Christ, that must be accurate since it came from the Spirit of God. You know, again, we talked about this, but in John 20 and 29, Jesus said, Thomas, you've seen me. You get it. I am God. He confirmed what Thomas said. The Bible says that we need to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm going to read this. John 4, 23 and 24 says this, but the hour is coming and now is when the worshipers, when the, excuse me, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The true worshipers, not the ones that are in idolatry, not the ones that are going to have, a, I mean, I'm being real, you got to have a right concept of God. He said it, you're going to worship me in what? In spirit and in truth. So what that means is if it's not in truth, maybe I'm not really worshiping him. He said in verse 24, he said, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh. Can I break protocol and have five more minutes? I'm sorry. I need five more minutes. Is that okay, Brother Price? I didn't even get to what I felt on this so strong. Let me ask a question. The Jews only operated one tabernacle, later one temple, with a single layout and design, a single purpose. They did this because it represented the one God they served. Why was there only one holy place? And why was there only one holy of holies? Only one mercy seat. Why did only one high priest once a year enter into the presence behind the veil? Why is it referred to as the presence and not the presences? All that typifies and alludes to the one God. Is the God I worship the exact God outlined or portrayed in scriptures? Or is it a God of my own doctrinal creation or a mixing of the two? Is he a God of my own design? If he is, then I'm not worshiping and following the one true God as the scriptures have told me to do. What, just like God asked, you know, am I going to let them inquire of me? Well, what can I expect from that relationship? The only way I can have a meaningful relationship with him as he has intended is to know him as the word portrays him. Am I willing to unlearn what I think I know and learn the truth about him and what his word provides? I need to ask God in prayer. And through reading of the word to lead me and guide me into that truth. And I need to be hungry enough and thirsty enough for God to study and let him deal with me. And if I'm in error, to let him change me. I challenge anybody to take anything that's come across in these past four lessons and to study it out in the word of God. You're going to find out this exactly what's there. Pray about it. Reach to him. Thank you for giving me a little extra time.